0: Today's show is brought to you by Hana. For the past few years, I've been taking Hana One, an all-natural, daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. Hana also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit Hana.com, that's dot com and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Afromo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Steve Mesler. Excelling as a decathlete in high school, Steve earned a track scholarship to the University of Florida. After injuries cut short his career, he switched to the bobsled. Steve and his team became the first Americans to win a world championship title in 50 years in 2009. And a year later, they won gold for the first time in 62 years for the U.S. at the Vancouver Olympics. Steve founded Classroom Champions, an international ed tech nonprofit organization that provides social and emotional learning curriculum and mentorship with help from hundreds of Olympians, Paralympians and pro athletes.
1: Steve, thanks for joining us today. Phil and I are really excited to have you on and talk about your athletic background, and then also the amazing things that you're doing with Classroom Champions. So thanks for joining us today. How are you doing?
2: Doing wonderful, man. Uh, great to start. Great way to start the year. I'm stoked to talk to you guys and, and, and dive in. And we've got a, Olympics are coming up. It's it's a, hopefully a great start to the year, you know, COVID aside.
1: That's right. How how has COVID affected uh, Classroom Champions? Um, Phil and I are huge fans of what you're doing, and congratulations—you've you. you've reached over a million students, which is what a milestone that is. So, congratulations! But if you could tell our audience a little bit about Classroom Champions, and uh, you know, and kind of what's what's the latest, uh, we'd love to dive in with you.
2: Yeah, no, thank you for thank you for asking about it. Uh, COVID for Classroom Champions is has actually been, you know, we were born for this. I mean, ultimately, Classroom Champions is about, it was something that I started when I was still competing. Um, I was tired of going into schools and giving a talk and leaving and never seeing those kids again. And I wanted to have a something that was more of an impact than if one or two kids listened, it's worth my time. While at the same time, like my sister, who was getting her PhD in education at the time, who was a teacher, and I was a teacher, and our parents were teachers, and we we wanted to help teachers bring in what you know the corporate world would call soft skills um, or what you know, the sp- our sports world would call just what we do and our, co- our culture and the way we think about things. We wanted to find a way to help teachers and schools bring that in. So from a COVID perspective, like all of our athletes that are, we, we leverage currently competing athletes, whether they're Olympians or Paralympians or NFL players or Buffalo Bills uh, players as the, as the Buffalo guy, our NCAA student athletes. And we work with those athletes virtually. So they use their phones So for us, programming kept going on. Everything we do is virtual. And we've gone from, you know, supporting on a, like on a weekly basis, we've got over 40,000 kids in our mentorship programs. As you mentioned, we reach millions with our, with our mission partnerships as well. And we're teaching, we're, we're helping schools implement goal setting and perseverance and ultimately helping them get better engagement with their kids and, and, you know, better outcomes for their, for their students.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I love that. Yeah, some of the stats are pretty incredible. Um, Obviously, with as Jim you rightly mentioned, over a million kids now—that's a pretty big sample size. And I know that you've got some some numbers for us in terms of um, retention rates, slash, you know, graduation rates, um, behavior in the classroom, grades, that kind of thing. Do you want to dive into a little bit, like some of the, I guess, what we could call the the hard or objective outputs, and then we could talk a little bit more, as you said, about kind of the the art of social, emotional learning and that side of it.
2: No, absolutely. That's, you know, coming, what's the opposite of if one or two kids listened, it's worth my time. It is data. It is saying, I know it was worth my time because here's what we're seeing. And ultimately when sports programs have tried in the past to work with and support schools, it's been about teaching kids sports or it's been about physical activity, which clearly I'm a physical you know, fitness advocate, Um, but ultimately you have to help your audience solve the problems they have. And they need better attendance. Schools need to help kids come to school. You can't come to, you can't learn if you don't come to school. Um, They need to help. When you think about the generation coming up, uh, they need to, to, you know, have a, an understanding that it takes a really long time to accomplish big things. All of us, when I was young, if my parents didn't have the E for encyclopedia, you know, E for elephant for encyclopedia, I had to go to the library and I had to get on my bike and I had to go. Today, everything's here. What the athlete mindset helps do, and that's what we help teach, is it helps kids and it helps teachers break down that doing big things is hard. And it's not just innate ability and skill. You guys do this all the time. To be successful... Yes, you need in sports, you need, yes, you need some genetic gifts. Absolutely. I'm not saying you don't, but ultimately the folks who, the men and women who are successful in sports are the ones who have a different way that they approach it up here. And what we've done at Class Champions is we've cracked that code. We've cracked that code that athletes, the athlete mindset, and we've helped schools um, put it in. So we th- see things like uh, statistically significant improvements in attendance in grades in math and reading scores, because when you can help kids understand that learning math is a goal, and just like squatting 500 pounds is a goal, there's steps I have to take to get there. Um, we see things like, uh, you know, over 90% of our teachers will say that, you know, tell us that like culture is improved in their classrooms. And what does improved culture means? It means a classroom of kids who do what I did, which was I moved to a foreign country to have somebody tell me what I did wrong. Stu McMillan, my old coach, 20 times a day, Stu told me what I did wrong. And I looked for that. It's a classroom of kids looking at their teacher saying, hey, how do I get better today? What do I need to do? What did, I did, what did I do wrong today? What did I do wrong yesterday? And that's what we see. And we help schools. And ultimately, schools don't put things inside their four walls, inside their you know, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., if it's not going to help student achievement. And that at Classroom Champions is what we've had to build over the last decade. We've had to build a program that isn't just fluff, that isn't just they'll do it if it's free for them. I mean, schools, like we have a donor and sponsor program to help keep costs low for schools, but ultimately there are costs associated with these things and schools invest in this because they see grades go up. They see all the leading indicators to get to graduation improve when, they, when you bring in classroom champions, which has been something that we're, we're really proud of.
1: Yeah, I think it's really cool that uh, not only are you in the U.S., you're in Canada, and uh, I just learned Costa Rica, congratulations. Uh, we've done, we've done, yeah, yeah. we've done some
2: work in Costa Rica. We've done some work at a partner program in Guatemala, where we've supported a, a, a basically a sister program called My Olympic Friend that the Guatemala Olympic Committee has has put forward. And we actually have users in over thirty countries across the world uh, that that leverage our curriculum, which is pretty cool.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I also love how you start with uh, in terms of the social and emotional learning. You start with goal setting and the idea of dreaming big. When did yeah. you first start dreaming big about? Uh, about the Olympics. And, and I know you were at university of Florida in track and field and uh, you've had a pretty amazing uh, track and field career and then a three-time Olympian in the, in the four-man bobsled. But yeah, tell us when you first started dreaming big. And I love hearing that from, uh, from athletes.
2: I would, for me, um, well, I'll, I'll, so I'll tell you a story. I was sitting in uh, Vancouver in my third Olympics and as you you know, as your team USA, as our athletes go to whether they're going to Beijing, or whether it was us back in 2010 in Vancouver, you have this thing called team processing, and team processing is you know it's like Candyland for for the athletes. Like you get there, and you know you get all of your gear, and you get all of your all of the stuff, all of the Olympic rings all over everything, and and they bring you to this hotel that the you know, Olympic Committee at the time, uh, and now it's the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, but the USOC at the time had put us together with, and as I'm sitting there. Uh, the next morning we get there at night, we get all of our gear, we're all excited. The next morning we're going to have a breakfast and then we go to the Olympic village. And as I'm sitting there, uh, I get a punch on my shoulder and who is it, but it's Dan O'Brien. And for those of you out there, Dan O'Brien's 1996 Olympic champion in decathlon. Well, Dan was my inspiration of going to the Olympics Back in, I started doing track and field in 1991, going to, or 1990, doing Junior Olympics when I was 11 years old, 12 years old. And then in 1992, you guys remember the old Dan and Dave commercials. And there if you if you haven't seen them out there, like go to YouTube, YouTube, Dan versus Dave. And those are the things that inspired me watching those guys. So here's Dan O'Brien at team processing at my third Olympic games. And he's the one that the USOC brought in to give the talk to us to get us fired up <clears throat> and what does Dan talk about? And I've known, I had met Dan, been lucky enough to met Dan a couple of times in my track career uh, as well as throughout my bobsled career as I you know, started becoming more and more present at different team USA functions. Dan and I got to know each other. Um, and what does Dan talk about? Dan's talking about to inspire the team about what inspired him to go to the Olympics, which was the 1980 miracle on ice. That's the thing he saw when he was a kid that made him want to be an Olympian. And his talk was about, you never know what kids are out there watching, who are going to watch you, our team, you guys go out there and win the Olympics and what you're going to inspire them to do. And meanwhile, here's the guy who full circle of life is the guy who inspired me. So that's where the spark came from. And that's where like the beauty of sport is that how all of these things kind of, kind of work together. And I, you know, that was for me, like the, I don't, I'm not a destiny fan at all, um, but that was like, it was really hard not to say. Wow, here's the guy who gave me the Olympic spark, who I was in the stadium in Atlanta in 1996 watching. And now he happens to be the person who's coming to give me my pep talk. And then we, you know, two weeks later, we went and won the gold medal. Yeah. So to rewind a little bit, obviously, decathlon is
0: arguably not to diminish any of the individual disciplines or those, you know, that span multiples you know like with the Mo Farah double or whatever it might be or before him the Zatapak triple you know the guy shows up and just decides yeah I'll run my first first marathon and wins that as well if people don't Mm -hmm. know it's like Mo plus and just a random marathon win as well but the decathlon is brutal in terms of you know injury rates in terms of the combination rare combination of speed power endurance technical mastery so is there a part of your personality that kind of likes taking knocks
2: and likes the challenge of having to learn and master different things at once? Oh, man, I love it. I mean, the jack of all trades, master of none thing is it, it, you know, being a CEO now of an organization, it's, it's to me what a CEO needs to be. You don't have to be fantastic at any one thing. It, it helps if you are world class at one or two things. But ultimately, you have to have a good understanding of everything that's happening, Um so it's, I think it, you know, wound up going into my personality fill of, of you know why I wound up founding an organization. But and that was the weird thing about moving from decathlon, uh, which I did in high school. I was national champion in high school and then uh, went to University of Florida and was an abject failure for, for four years. And then in a bobsled was I was pretty bored bobsledding because all your, your job is to just be big, strong, fast, and push straight. Like my job as a bobsledder was to push for five seconds and sit for a minute. That was it, Um, which is not necessarily like a transferable skill.
0: Yeah, but I think we touched on three different phases of your life in which you had to have a white belt mentality or what people might call now a growth mindset in -hmm. three different phases. So one, in first learning all the different events in the decathlon, um, you know, in middle school and high school and then going into college, then, you know, making that tough decision to call time on your track career. And then you have this big transition from summer sport and, you know, wanting to be the next. Dan or Dave, the next Dan O'Brien um, yep. in, into being a big, a complete beginner at age 20 something, which mm-hmm. is late, you know, maybe not yeah. in bobsled, but in general is pretty late to, to go from zero to Olympic champion. And then again, the third time with being an entrepreneur and a CEO. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, white belt mentality, beginners mindset.
2: Yeah, no, I like that white belt mentality. Where does that come from? I got
0: it from Brian McKenzie, who got it from Kai Borg, who is a former North, North shore enforcer in the surf community turned jujitsu world champion, heavyweight, um, turned kind of warrior poet sage. (laughs)
2: Fantastic. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to start, I'm going to start using that. I haven't heard it used in that, in that way before. Um, no, I mean, I do like ultimately, I think that is where I find the most joy in life. Um, I like learning things. I like Um, you know, I made it a very conscious decision when I left bobsled, which was, I, I thought about going into coaching and ultimately I, and I would have loved it. I would have enjoyed it. I would have, I would have probably been really good at it, but I wanted a different challenge. Like I just did. I said, you know what? I, and honestly, one of the things that really, I knew I didn't want to go into coaching bobsled, but there was a moment in June of 2010 a few months after I won my, after we won our Olympic gold medal, I was sitting back in Buffalo and a guy named Sam Sellers that I <clears throat> grew up with one of my best friends from, you know, yay big turns, you know, we're having a couple beers, you know, on a patio and he goes, you know, what's it feel like they've written the first line of your obituary at age 31. And it stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, no, like, no, I, no, no. I want to go do something. I do not want to, I didn't want to, I went from track to bobsled because I didn't want to think after my four years of abject failure and injuries at university of Florida, I didn't want to think I peaked as an athlete at age 17 when I was national champion. And I found bobsled and I was like, let me give this a shot and make a, you know, long story short. Like I went to three Olympics and got to go do things that, you know, we broke the world championship streak of 50 years. We broke the Olympic gold medal streak of 62 years. Um, And I like, just didn't want to think that I peaked in life at age 31, that I was going to spend the rest of my days talking about this thing that eventually it would feel like a different person did. Um, so I think that was someplace in me was always built for, for that, whether, whether it's built because I'm looking for failure and I just like keep on knocking on those doors and somehow I keep lucking my way into succeeding. Um, or I, you know, I like to think of it more of I just like the challenge of building things. I was the kid that when I would get in trouble, when I was young, I would get sent to my room and I had my Legos and I was totally happy to sit in my room and build Legos for hours. And once I built a city of Legos, I would knock it down and I would start all over again. And I kind of feel like that's what I've done over the last kind of decade at a time of, of moving through.
0: I love that. Um, so not only did you need a white belt mentality uh, and to withstand our mutual friend, Stuart McMillan's uh, the rigors of his coaching process yeah. Um, yeah. and others, of course, but that's also a very demanding sport. You know, the crashes are dramatic. We'll talk about some of the crashes and how you mentally bounce back from that in a minute. But yeah, you know, you knew how to take your knocks in the decathlon. Um, do you think that you were able to lateralize that ability to, both have to train really hard, suffer a lot, sacrifice a lot and deal with injury and deal with knocks. Was that something you were able to kind of transfer from your track days to your bobsled days?
2: No, I mean, not at all. I okay. mean, I, I had to, and sorry, I'm just going to uh, shift around here. The sun deal starts it. to poke in. Um, <clears throat> no, I mean, when I look at my college track career, I was, and this is where your white, men, white belt mentality, I think actually really starts to hmm really starts to kick in for me personally is I was, you know, I was a soft track athlete. Um, you know, maybe it's cause I was at, I mean, I was looking to be a soft athlete. I went to university of Florida. I went to the heat. I went to a place cause I didn't want to from Buffalo, New York originally. And I didn't want to have to, you know, deal with all of the, the lousy outdoor training conditions. Um, you know, lo and behold, and I wind up going to Calgary and bobsled eventually. So that was all out the window. But ultimately, I think that that white white belt mentality in me, where I needed to just change the way I thought about things Um, back going from track to bobsled. Like, I was at Florida, where you have like this huge team of people. Like, I mean, it's NCAA machine where you have teams of people who are there to help you succeed, help you graduate. And then I was going to go into bobsled, where I was going to be by myself. And I was going to be competing against men who had families who were trying to live their dream and sacrificing work. Like how in the hell was I going to be able to take this mentality where I was hurt every single year in college, every year I couldn't finish my season and then go over and compete against men. And I just had to like, literally make a decision. I'm not going to get hurt anymore. And I'm going to look at this differently. And there were some moments where I had to really like face my demons. And eventually I wound up changing my mindset to the point where I spent nine years, and I didn't miss one race and in a sport that is inarguably harder on your body than track and field. To your point, you are your own. The only problem I have with the uh, with the white belt is that in my head I keep thinking white collar, and I always say bobsled is a blue collar sport. You're your own pit crew. You are warming up in like a parking lot that has a tiny bit of snow and ice on it is like a dream warm up. When you're a track athlete, if it's anything but the flattest, most perfect Bermuda grass it is not acceptable for you to warm up and you have to make this transition into warming up on snow and ice with crampons on and in minus you know 10 degree weather to be able to to be able to perform so you have to really really be able to be blue collar or in, you know in your perspective here white belt where you have to be able to manage your sled you have to be able to manage um you know your how you time your warm up is different in minus 10 degrees weather <laughs> Like, how do you get yourself ready? How do you prepare yourself? And I think those are the things that I really, really loved about the transition from track to bobsled and how monstrously different those two sports are.
1: Yeah. Being a pusher is, uh, it's fun to watch. Tell us about that. That is what an amazing role that you played on the team. You
2: get to be a horse. I mean, I was a, like, I always tell people I was two feet taller and two feet wider when I was a bobsledder. Um, I'm a skinny little slight distance running you know, want to be distance runner now. And, um, with zero genetic ability to do distance running, I can tell you that much. Um, but you know, being a push athlete, you spend your, you spend your off season eating 7,000 calories a day. You spend your off season squatting a house. You know, we used to be able to do, I could do, you know, five by 42 inch hurdles, nine feet apart. Um, that's how much power production you're creating. Um, it was really, really, Amazing, um, and then you get to go out and just be like a slobbering, angry human being to push this thing that weighs five hundred pounds with with three other guys. Um, it was a really fun personality break for me. Um, you know, when people see me, they're like, "I don't, I can't see you screaming and yelling and pushing and shoving this thing down a hill." I'm like, "Well, that's that was part of the fun. Is I got to be? It was like I got to wear a costume." for, I love the training part of decathlon, which is why I think I love decathlon so much. I wasn't as great at the competitions. So I had to change my perspective of how I was going to be ready for game day and competitions. And what I realized is I had to change my personality a little bit on game day for bobsled compared to the, compared to more of the, um, you know, softer personality that I had.
1: How about the transition be, you know, essentially you were an individual athlete at university of Florida mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm sure you did some relays and and you're part of a, a real big team, but um, what was it like being part of a, a you know the foreman team? Uh, was that how much of a transition was that? And you know any any little uh, uh, little gems for us in terms of teamwork and leadership from your experiences
2: or missteps above. or both? Good, <laughs> yeah, good point. All of the above. Um, you know it was. <sighs> I played soccer growing up a bit too. So I, so I knew that team environment. I was cap, captain of my soccer team. And I think I was, I was always a better, I was the leader of our decathlon crew. So I always kind of had that in me, whether, you know, whether you want to call it bossy or leadership, I think as you're developing, you're trying to figure out the difference um, between those two things. And, you know, ultimately, you know, bossiness is getting to people to do the things you want them to do. And leadership is, is, you know, you know, leading through influence and, and, you know, teaching people that they want to do these things anyway, and you're just there to help them do these things. And um, when, you know, for me, I think I had two very distinct parts of my career. My first half of my career was under um, the regime um, of a guy named Todd Hayes. And Todd and I have had these conversations and, and Todd's leadership style was much more like we are men. We will do these things go. And, <clears throat> What I learned was that's fantastic. Great. You know, like bobsled, manly men pushing other than you, like wearing tights, uh, you are pushing these things and all this stereotypical um, manliness, if you will. And ultimately though, what I learned was that's fantastic on a day-to-day basis. But when the screws tighten, if you don't have a camaraderie amongst that team, things fall apart really quickly. And we learned that the hard way in Torino, we were gold, silver, gold in the world cup races going into the 2006 Olympics. And yet I can remember vividly warming up for the race in Torino, Italy. And we were favorites to medal. It wasn't, if we were going to medal; it was simply what color we, we were dominant through the entire quad. And I can remember warming up and seeing Todd and nod, nod and keep going up. That ball in my stomach was still super tight. And I'd see, see, you know, Brock and see Pavle and, and nothing really like alleviated my stress and my strain, and we got our butts kicked. Um, you know, we we pushed okay. Todd drove terribly, um, and it just all fell apart under the pressure. And we got seventh. That was seventh place was literally our worst finish in four years in any World Cup race or World Championships race. Um, so going into 2010, I think the thing that I learned at that moment was like, a, no one cares. If you lose in America, no one cares. And I think that was a really, really interesting lesson for this 27-year-old kid to learn. Everybody cared going in. And I think that is a that is something about you know our country that is both good and br- absolutely brutal. Like we were on today's show, we were doing all these things, and the moment we crossed the line seventh, not one person wanted to talk to me except for my hometown paper in Buffalo, New York. And I would suggest if you I, I can send this to you. As I look back, it is beautiful. I am so proud of the 27 year old who was sitting on the track that day with his dreams crushed. I said to Bucky Gleason, the the writer back then, I said, you know, I would love to say that we succeeded, but we didn't. We failed. Like, you, you don't get these opportunities twice in life. You don't get an opportunity to win and be Olympic champion multiple times. So I cannot believe I'm walking out of here having missed and lost my dream. And I did say that I'm never, I'm bound and determined not to let this happen again. If I get another shot, we're going to do it differently. And boy, oh boy, did we, did we stick to that? So Phil to your, your point of like, what are the nuggets? What are the, what are the things? Um, You know, by 2010, we had a team that had fun together. We had a team that worked. It's really, really hard. Like (laughs) winning, it sounds like an understatement, but winning the Olympic games is really Incredibly difficult to do in whatever sport you're doing, whether it's 100 meters or whether it's bobsled or whether it's sailing or fencing. It doesn't really matter because you're competing against people from around the world who are the best at that one thing. And it doesn't matter if the base of the pyramid, like track and field, is is this wide, or whether the base of the pyramid, like bobsled, is this wide. You um, you have to. When the, when the, you know, when the gun goes off, when the, when the cock counts down, you have to have all of your ducks in a row. And that is what we learned in bobsled and to the teamwork side of things, I think encouraging and finding ways for your team to, to get along so that when the screws do tighten, you can relieve the stress amongst yourselves. So as I warmed up, I was able to look at Kurt Thomasevich and I was able to like, you know, this big, strong Midwestern Nebraska corn fed dude. We were able to, that's when we nodded each other. And then my, my knocks kind of did this, Justin Olson, this little, the San Antonio, Texas, like man-child at the time. He was 22. I was 31. I'd come up to him and I would literally punch him in the stomach as hard as I could in the middle of the warm ups, And he would do this big, goofy, ogre laugh. And our, both of our stomachs would do this. I'd, I'd see Steve Holcomb, uh, rest in peace. I would see Steve Holcomb across the parking lot. And I would start to scream and yell the Hulky, sing the Hulky dance, this stupid digital underground Humpty dance remake we did. And he would start to dance. So warming up for the Olympic Games, I was yelling across the parking lot, and Steve Holcomb was dancing. And we went out when we won by more than anybody had won in 16 years of the Olympic Games.
0: You mentioned Steve. Um, why, why was Steve such a great leader and teammate for you, particularly at that point in your athletic career?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Hulky was, and, and you know, for your listeners, Hulky um, passed away and. 2017, I think. COVID, COVID time warp has, has changed my perception of how long ago things were. Um, you know, I think Hulky knew what he was good at, and Hulky knew what he wasn't good at. Hulky, Hulky was a very introverted leader, and he understood that there was things he needed to do, and he outsourced the rest. So I think that as leaders, we think sometimes we have to have all the answers, or as coaches, we think we have to be the ones who have all the answers. And I think what Hulky was fantastic at, and the drivers are the captains of the team, and Bob said was he knew he wasn't the guy who was going to go and yell and scream to the coaches to advocate for something our team needed but he knew i had no problem doing that so he and i would discuss those things and he would he would you know delegate slash um allow me to you know lead, lead to my strengths and you know, i think that's where you know he was fantastic and and ultimately he was a great athlete and driver because he, he drove by, he used the force. He drove by feel because he was blind for half of his career, which meant that it was less cognitive for him. And if you're doing something that's less cognitive and more automatic, there's less chances of you, frankly, choking under pressure. Um, and that's where, you know, Hulgi really shine from an athletic perspective.
0: Can you dive into that a little bit? What you just said about that he had to drive basically blind for half his career?
2: Yeah. He had a degenerative eye disease that um, caused him to lose his sight um very pretty rapidly from about 2005 to 2006 until he had surgery in 2008 2000 I think right around late 2008 maybe um or early 2008 and um so he was literally starting to go blind and he was by the time he um you know by the time he was going into surgery he was like what is it 2020s perfect vision he was like 500 um that's how like yeah he couldn't couldn't see couldn't do anything, um, and what that caused him to do is he didn't like bobsled. You drive by like there's a literally a you know a crack in the concrete that you could see through the ice, a compression joint in the concrete, and you'll know when you get to this compression joint you're going to drive down. Well, when you don't have the ability to see, you have to learn how to really feel the g forces and the pressure of the g's through your hands and through the bum um, through the bum in your seat. And Hulk can learn how to do that so that when he got his eyes corrected. Um, through a, like an innovative surgery that was actually named after him because it was so experimental at the time when he was able to do that i mean a the first day he did that there are you know urban legends and bobsled and it is part of it is true where he did take one trip down the track and realized he was scared out of his mind because he could see way too much so he came you're up in like
0: up to 85 miles an, hour-ish, right? exactly, 80, you're, 85 you're miles an hour ish right exactly over over 85 you're in a missile with three other guys, and if you make one mistake, you can flip this thing
2: going eighty miles an hour. And he's and doing are, this,
0: and he can't see.
2: And he can't see. <clears throat> Correct, Phil. You said it better than I could. And we come <laughs> back up like for the-
0: anyone listening that doesn't know or hasn't watched bobsled. Like this is not playing around territory. This is like a pretty high consequence environment. Yeah,
2: you you learn to drive bobsleds by crashing over and over and over again. There is no way to learn <laughs> other than by trial and error. So he was, you know, he was a decade past his trial and error phase at that point. Um, But he, we actually came back up the top of the track and we actually scuffed up his visor because he just didn't need to see that much. And, you know, he, he knew where his strengths were and he knew where his weaknesses were and he, he didn't want to pollute his eyes. Like, I don't need to see all these things. I don't need to see the leaves in the track on the, you know, that was frozen in from three months ago. I just don't need to see it.
0: Uping up the visor to make him be able to see less, literally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love your idea of just, wow. you know, never letting the the pressure exceed the pleasure and that you guys um loved each other so much and, and you know and loved ribbing each other and and, and uh to kind of let some of that steam out. Um uh yeah, yeah say more about that. I, I think I usually see too many athletes, they get too tense, uptight, nerdy when it's time to perform instead of, you know, being free, loose and athletic. And you guys really found that sweet spot.
2: We really did. And I think as I, you know, we did it very purposefully where you're in an environment where you are, you're not in a football game where you're going head to head against somebody, but you're at the top of a track that in Whistler, Vancouver, um, Olympic games, in 2010, that literally killed somebody two weeks before we went. I mean, the luge athlete, um, Nodar passed away. And so you are, you're competing against other people. So what we were really, really good at is, um, and you know, great leaders are like this, right? Where you you take all the blame and you deflect any credit kind of thing. We did, we we enjoyed ourselves. We, after we would win a race, we would go out and we'd have, we'd have you know, we'd have a couple of drinks and we would do, um, and we would never ever, we never wanted to see anybody else seeing us working as hard as we did, but we wanted to see them, have them see us enjoying ourselves as much as we did. We had a, a new bobsled and we we called the night train at the time that was named after Harley Davidson had a motorcycle that was Matt Black. And our Bob Cuneo um, from Connecticut, who was Chassis Dynamics and our sled builder had named it um, had named it the night train because he was a big Harley Davidson fan. But the reason why it was Matt Black, everybody thought it was we had this special paint and Hulky had said it was the special paint from NASA. It was primer, the primer coat, a bobsled. If anybody, when you watch the Beijing Olympics, you'll see these glossy, shiny things. Well, when you are testing a sled, the glossy, shiny hard coat is really expensive, actually. And it's quite finicky. So when we would test the sled, we would just have a primer coat on it just to protect the fiberglass. And the sled was so fast when we tested it. We said, we're bringing this thing to Europe in two weeks. They're like, no, no, no. We've got to bring it back to Connecticut and get the hard code on. I said, why? Well, we need to. It's like, is it going to make it faster? Well, no. We said, well, then we don't care. We don't care if it gets a little scuffed up here and there. We're not not racing in it. So we brought it on tour. No one had ever seen a matte painted bobsled before. And we are happy to let that go. We were happy to let the other teams think. Because you know what? If we were pushing really fast, you know what they could do? Squat more, sprint harder, run faster get there. If Holcomb was driving better than them, what can they do? They can watch video. They can do these things. We were happy to deflect the credit into the sled and into the paint job and let our opponents believe they couldn't work any harder. They couldn't push any faster. They couldn't drive any better. It was the sled. And then they were screwed. And you had Andre Lange and the Germans trying to copy our sled. Now, meanwhile, we were beating them to the second split and the push. So our velocities were faster. So our escape velocities were faster. We were doing all these other things, right? Our aerodynamics in the sled riding positions were great. We were working harder than anybody else, but all they saw was a, as a team that would go out and have some drinks after we won and a fast sled.
0: So it's kind of like the old Mars Blackman, um, Jordan commercials. Then Michael money, it's gotta be the shoes, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's a great, exactly. That was exact. We were, we wanted that we desperately wanted them because man if it's olympic year and their sled is faster forget about it like we had the germans who had never lost an olympic andre yeah, longin never lost was a le-
0: legendary driver legendary, right? a legendary, legendary the
2: greatest yeah. bobsledder of all time mm-hmm. who had raced in four olympic races including the week before in the two man race in vancouver and had never lost he was 4 and 0 he had four gold medals and he was down by almost half a second after one after one day which is in bobsled time, you know, it's, it's like being up 60 to nothing at, you know, the halftime of an NFL football game.
0: Yeah. Amazing. When you guys were in that four-year cycle, so you go from being very candid with a journalist on, on, on the track. No, it wasn't a success. like, don't try to put words in our mouths, right? This is failure, right? This yep. is failure and it's mm-hmm. crushing. Did you, you in the ensuing four years, did you use this legendary German team as a target? Um, and, and what other motivation other than never wanting to feel like that again, did you put into play to try to elevate yourselves to where they were and where he personally had been? Like you said, all these Olympics, all these world championships in a rug.
2: Yeah. Every single day, every single day we looked, I thought of Kevin Kuske, who was his best push athlete. These guys are friends of mine, I should say too. It's not like I demonized them. I didn't make them right. evil. I don't believe in that. Um, <laughs> it, wasn't you know, a super, I, it wasn't a marvel movie. No I mean I learned I learned how to speak German so I could get to know people and and you know spend time on tour. you're in, you're in Germany Austria and Switzerland all these years and you know I would ride with Andre Lange, the, the greatest bobsled driver of all time. I would catch a ride with him in between tracks sometimes. That being said, we all wanted to beat the ever living tar out of each other on the track. And I would picture Kevin Kuske, uh, you know, when I was in the squat rack here in Calgary training on a summer day, I would picture Kuske and I'd picture those guys and what it was like to stand on the opposite side of the fence about 50 yards away from the medal podium and have to sit there and watch these people win my Olympic medal. Um, and that was fuel. I, I do believe that. I mean, there is a there's a dark side of the force when it comes to finding your motivation, and it can't always. Sometimes it's not always the positive thing. Sometimes it is going and finding those those things that disappointed you and and put you in that dark place to motivate yourself.
1: Yeah. Do you, Do you think that it would have been possible to do so well? I mean, you went from the lowest of lows, sort of. I mean, seventh of the world blows our minds, but for you guys, it was a massive disappointment. But yeah. Then, you know, it made the comeback that much sweeter and and what an amazing story, Uh, but to go to the highest highs and, and it was such a big moment in the U S and around the world too. I mean, it was, you guys were doing things that weren't, you know, people thought were kind of impossible at that point for the U S what was that high like? And, and would you maybe even not been able to reach that high point without that previous performance?
2: It's cliche as could be, but there is absolutely no way we win Olympic gold in 2010 if we don't get our butts kicked in 2000, in 2006, it doesn't, it does not happen. If we got silver or bronze in 2006, I don't think we, we are able to make the dramatic enough changes to be able to do it. Like incremental change at that point. Wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna make the difference. We needed a full makeover for the way that we did it. I was the only USA one athlete who was USA one in 2006 to 2010. We fully made over the driver Two other push athletes. We revamped, we revamped it all. Um, And ultimately the lessons I was able to learn in 2006 and carry forward for the team made, you know, made some big differences. And again, we had just a, you know, incredible coaching staff, Brian Scheimer and, you know, Seth Platza, who, who, you know, I remember 2006, 2007 post Olympic year, Seth and I would go at it um, because I definitely didn't want to get too serious post Olympic year. I mean, there, when you're, when you're at Olympic games uh, level, the the years in between, you have World Cup races every weekend. You're on season. So for everybody at home who clearly wouldn't understand the bobsled season, I uh, don't expect anybody to bring that knowledge to them. Every week, as soon as the season starts in mid November, every weekend you're in a different track around the world in Europe and in Asia and um, you know North America racing. And you know in Europe it's actually a pretty big sport. And you're you know you're trying through. Ultimately, as an American, the only thing that matters is the Olympic Games. As an American, the only thing that matters is, is meddling at the Olympic Games when it comes to the, the dreams that you had. Once you've been to the Olympics once, that's not a good enough goal anymore like anything else in life. you know. When I was 10 years old, somebody said you're going to be an Olympian. That would have been the end-all, be-all. wouldn't even have thought I'm going to be so selfish to think I can go get a medal. Um, but once you go to two Olympics as an American, you are now officially in a medal drought um, <laughs> of, of, of not performing and not succeeding. So those are the things that we were able to bring you know, bring forward and which, I mean, honestly, from my perspective, I couldn't have labeled it at the time I was dep- I was in depression after the 2006 games would not have had the tools nor anything else around me to, to label it. But, uh, you know, having moved forward and having actually have, having had suffered through clinical depression, you know, not too, not, not too long ago. I think the good thing that I've ri re- from that, that experience is, and also my, how I went from track to bobsled, which was, you know, deep injuries that caused me to go to there. I think. There's one thing that I've learned in life is as long as you can make it through the bottom alive, you're going to learn from it and be that much more successful on the backside of it. So helping people through their depression and understand that, look, you just have to get through. And sometimes you have to get through this hour and you have to get through this day. You can't think about three months from now when you're in a state of, you know, when you're in a full state of depression, um, or at least I couldn't. And and some of those other folks that I talked to to, can't either, but understanding that man, oh man, like you take an athlete mindset, if you can just get through the bottom side, if you can get through the awful soreness of squatting really heavy, you're going to get stronger. If you can get through the awful workout, you're going to get faster. And that's the beauty of what sport is, you know, has taught me. And luckily it saved my life too. For
0: Sure. So you mentioned, um, as well as depression, like that kind of anxiety that you couldn't shift in 06 and maybe before that, you know, that knot in your stomach. Yeah. Um, has that been something that's resurfaced in the years since, or is that something that you've largely got under control in high pressure situations?
2: Um, high pressure situations now? Yeah, no problem. I think mean, it's the day to day, right? It's the day to day. It's the family. It's the, it's the, you know, it's the organization. Real it's life. The, mm-hmm. It's it's the real, it's the real life It's it called
1: the full catastrophe.
2: <laughs> I like that one. That's my second, my second takeaway here, uh, white belt and full the full catastrophe, which is everything. everything. Um, yeah, no, I, I think if there's one thing that I've you know been able to take and I hope be able to teach to other people is, is that, you know, how you handle those big pressure situations. Now, again, I think all of us are probably starting to figure out the last two years, we've really all figured out how you handle the day-to-day pressures because it's just been you know, collapsed upon itself over the, over the last two years. My wife is 35 weeks pregnant right now. Um, you know, so we've been really quarantining down as, as Omicron takes off and, you know, our four and a half year old is unvaccinated. So we've really been in super close quarters with all with ourselves. Um, and, you know, I think how you, she would either laugh or hit me for saying that I, I don't know if, you know, man and wife have been, you know, meant to be pregnant and quarantined together at the same time. Uh, <laughs> I think she's behind me back there. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, I think
0: I saw someone with a bat moving in the back. Yeah. I watch
2: out. No, but we, I mean, ultimately it's brought us, ultimately it has brought us closer. Ultimately it has forced us to have conversations, just like we were forced to have those conversations between 2006, 2010. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's
0: getting real with it. Right. Yeah. Um, Could you take us a little bit further into that kind of the side that people don't see? So again, you mentioned, you know, kind of the, some of the Olympic sports and I even put sports like swimming in this, right? Nobody outside the sport of swimming for good or for ill, gives a crap about swimming outside of world championship and Olympics either. And and that's something that, you know, there's a lot of youth participation in, but ultimately TV audience is outcome driven and particularly I have to say the Summer Olympic coverage is just woeful. You know, I'm not the only one to have said this, right? It, when you when you turn on the four by four hundred meter relay and it's highlights, of, you really can't sit there for four minutes. They don't think people will sit there and watch a full four by four relay. I know, it's Just awful, but, I know, man. It, and even ESPN, it's become one dunk, one block and one missed shot or made shot at the end. And that's your basketball highlights. Whereas when I first came to the US in 2001, it was glorious. It was like five, six, seven minutes of every game. It was amazing. <laughs> but anyway, so social media has done this. Um, phones have done this. Highlights of highlights. So somebody watches your bobsled race a couple of minutes, even if they show the full bloody thing anymore, right? And then yep. they see you're either on the podium or you're not. So they see either a in quotes good outcome or an in quotes bad or disappointing outcome, but they don't see all the stuff behind the scenes. What other demons have you had to wrestle with over the years to to go from seventh to get on that podium? What other depths have you had to pull yourself out of or have other people help pull you out of?
2: (sighs) It's a very layered, very layered question, Phil. I think that as I, you know, as I look back, right. I mean, it was a different person. It's 20, you know, it's 2022. Um, As I can look back now and really, I think that's the one thing that time and distance from our Olympic gold medal in 2010 has given me, it's given me the ability to actually brag about that person that did that because it feels like a different person at this point. Um, You know, there was times where you, you come off it and you, you know, you don't want to take credit. You don't want to do those things. I can look back now and see like, my God, man, that kid who, who got devastated in 2006 and then was able to help lift his team up and help, you know, Steve Holcomb battle his demons, um, from 2006 to 2010. I mean, that Holcomb's blind, you know, Holcomb's blindness caused, um, you know, different, you know, issues and challenges. He had to struggle through depression. He had to struggle through substance abuse. Um, substance abuse is the thing that eventually took his life. Um, and we had to manage that. On a day-to-day basis during an Olympic year, um, and, and that was just nothing I would have ever thought that we would have had to manage a teammate's substance abuse issues as we are striving to go in the Olympics. You just don't you don't put those two things together. Where well, how how in the world would somebody have substance abuse issues if they want to go win Olympic gold medal? Aren't those kind of diverging <laughs> diverging quests in life um, to a certain degree? But a problem is a problem, and uh, you know, and an addiction is an addiction. And I think that's you know one of the things that we really had to do going into those games, while also keeping it you know not necessarily a public, you know not necessarily a public issue. I mean, you can go back and you can you know connect the dots. You can look at a Sports Illustrated article that David Epstein wrote in the fall of two thousand nine, and it opens up with three beer bottles at Lisa G's sitting there, and Holcomb's explaining G forces through beer bottles. You know that might be the first indicator that there might've been a, you know, there might've been a thing there. Um, you know, even as I say, we were able to pull off steam and go out and have beers together with people. So I think some of those things, you know, I think we were able to separate ourselves from the crowd as you're dealing with an Olympic you're, you're dealing with a lot of motion and drama, um, especially in a team environment like bobsled which is not the most objective sport. It's not track and field. It's not, you no, know, you are top three at Olympic trials. You go to the Olympics. Like there are people jostling for positions. So we actually, you know, much to the chagrin of a lot of the other, you know, Americans on the team, we actually separated ourselves and we just had our own table. Every breakfast, lunch, and dinner, every, every, you know, hotel we were staying at in Europe throughout the world, we just had our own dinner. We had our own table and it was our four man team because we just didn't want to. Expose ourselves. We could almost like quarantine ourselves in today's terms. We almost quarantined ourselves, not from COVID, but from the drama and the pressure because we had the team. We were the, we were, we broke the 50 year, 50 year drought for world championship gold medal the year before. We knew that we were strong and stable. So I think finding ways that you can, you know, isolate yourselves from other, other challenges as much as possible for us at the time, would it have been a long term three or four year, you know, solution? No. But it was a one season solution. And as I talked to, you know, I talked to Chris Master this morning, who's, uh, you know, defending silver medalist in luge, who, you know, just found out he made the, the Olympic team in singles luge. Um, and I hear in his voice, the excitement and the relief of making that team. And, and there's like nothing better. There's nothing better than talking to so, an athlete on the day they make the Olympic team. Even if it's their fourth, there's just like the joy mixed with the like just emotional oh, breath they're able to take. Um, All comes together, and that you know it's a it's a winding way, Phil, to answer the the question of of all the other demons and all the other challenges that you have to go through. But like when we watch these athletes in Beijing, every single one of them, especially right now, like I'm I'm actually jealous um, of them to a degree right now of what they're what they've been going through.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We talked to Molly Seidel a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to get her on the show as well, and so. Um, I had talked to her just before she went and she had said, if I hear one more time, oh, well, it's just your first Olympics is, you know, only your third ever marathon, just go and enjoy it. You know, you're young, I'm sure you'll get back. And she was like, I'm going to take someone's lunch money. And she ended up winning bronze in just her third (sighs) marathon. Like who does, other than Zatapak, who does that, right? Just amazing. But I love the warrior mindset. And then, by the way, she went and broke the American course record while running on two fractured ribs at the New York Marathon. So just a yeah. warrior. But yeah. just hearing the before and after, and she said, actually, it was an advantage at the Tokyo Olympics when the, you know, she would have loved to have her family there. Her coach was able to be there in person, but... There was none of the usual like, oh, we're going to go and see the snow monkeys in the onzans, the hot springs, and we're going to go tour all these cultural sites in Tokyo, and then we're going to go to Okinawa. There was none of the sightseeing even possible. So she said, actually, because it felt more businesslike, it made her, you know, and other teammates around her feel like, all right, we're here to do a job, go out, do the job and get the heck home. And it was a completely different thing to if there had been fans. And again, this is someone coming into their first Olympics who doesn't have anything to compare it to. But I, I love that perspective. I think mid mid to late twenties, maybe. Okay, so, yeah, awesome, pretty awesome, right? And awesome. Like, there wasn't the sightseeing, and there wasn't the Olympic Village camaraderie, and she spun it round because a lot of people would have said, "Oh, it sucks. I'm really sad. My parents can't be here. My sister can't be here. You know what?" But she flipped it and was like, "No." business like is good because now I can just go out and do a job and then go home.
2: And I, and I think that's the, that's the athlete mindset, <clears throat> like everything else. And that's the thing you know, I sit on the board of directors for the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee. And I think these are conversations that we have that as an athlete perspective, I'm able to bring to folks, which is having your family there, enjoying the village, enjoying the experience of the games. Those are literally all secondary parts of the puzzle. The primary is is succeeding. Whatever success looks like from a competition standpoint. There's plenty of people who go to the Olympic Games and understand they're not going to medal. But they're there and they're going to have their best performance that they've ever had. All of the rest of that is secondary to that. And that's what we forget is we feel sorry for them because they have the COVID Olympics. And, and sure, but ultimately, if you win a gold medal at the Olympic Games, it doesn't matter whether it was the COVID Games. It doesn't matter... That you were quote unquote robbed of the experience of a a crowd cheering. We're bobsledders. We're marathon runners. Like, well, maybe marathon runners expect a little bit more of a crowd, but bobsledders certainly were used to. Certainly were used to that. And you know, to go. But the thing I loved about your story there, Phil, was the thing that I really, really appreciate when I listen to athletes these days now is is ultimately the fact of the matter is the Olympic the floor of the Olympic Games, the track of the Olympic Games, the track, whatever it is, the, the mountain of the Olympic Games is not a safe space. It's not people out there are sharks. They're coming for you. And, and the, the athletes who succeed, the ones that we are, you know, generally most impressed with, you always hear the stories of their perseverance of their, of their ability to rise above their ability to focus through these things. And I think that that's something that when you watch these athletes go, like everybody out there wants to win and they all are close enough athletic, you know, ability wise, that like yes, in a marathon over the course of twenty six miles, both physical and mental will do it. But man, oh man, in a sport like bobsled where you're pushing for five seconds, you better be mentally ready to ready to roll, and you better understand that that the second you make a slip, there's ten other ten other guys. And as a you know as a bobsledder, you knew that every single day, every single day, you knew that there were ten guys who wanted my spot because I was in Steve Holcomb's sled, and Steve Holcomb's sled was going to medal at the Olympic Games. So you had to not only like, you did have to watch your water bottle. That was a thing like you, you had, you had to understand that everybody out there wanted to win. This was not a safe space. And I'm interested to see how the next generation of athletes, you know, navigate that, navigate that world where, um, you know, safe spaces are, are more cultivated in, in environments in, in society today than they've ever been, but ultimately on the floor of the, you know, floor of the Olympic games. It's, I don't foresee it being a safe space anytime soon.
1: Yeah. yeah it's, it's amazing. Uh, uh, just even the, some of the combat athletes I work with, they talk about, you know, you have to step over <laughs> dead bodies to get to, to where you want to go. And, and, uh, you know, we talk about being that predator, um, uh, that loves to hunt and, uh, tigers are takers, you know, they, 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 you know, they take the medals, they take the you know, they take the records, they take, you know, they take the lead. And so, uh, it is pretty cutthroat and, you know, you better put your suit of armor on, you know, before you get out there. So, um, you, where do your competitive juices come from? I love how, uh, how fired up you get thinking about, you know, Molly Seidel or just, you know, just, just all these Olympic stories are so fun. And, and I love your, also your, um, uh, just, just joy for others that get, get, get a taste of that as well, making the Olympics. Um, what a special day that is, like you said, and just being able to share it with them is a highlight for you as well. So
2: absolutely. You know, where it comes from, I, I, I can't, I don't like to say it was built in me. Like it Mm -hmm. doesn't work that way. Like, and, and it would be like, you know, antithetical to the entire concept of classroom champions. If I were to say I was just built that way. Um, I can remember as a kid, I, my first Olympics, my first junior Olympics were in Lincoln, Nebraska. I went out and got like fifth place in the high jump or something like that. Um, or, and, and there's actually a picture somewhere right back there is like a picture of me high jumping. I don't know if you could see it on the wall. Um, and that was for my first junior Olympics. And the next year I went out and got my butt kicked, barely made it to nationals and made it like the relay. And I remember asking my dad, I was like, Hey, like, what do I do? Like, what do I do? How do I make sure that doesn't happen again? He went to the library. He got a book on poly- plyometrics, which, you know, for those listening at home, probably not a good idea to have, maybe not a good idea to have your 12-year-old do plyometrics. It,
0: was it the Donald A. Chu book? Is that, is that the- I, I uh, can't was that remember. It's like even. the classic back in the day, right? The it, this was
2: 19, this was, this would have been winter. It would have been fall of 1991. Mm. Uh, There wasn't many plyometric books available, especially at a public library in Buffalo, New York, you know? So it was probably that classic one. And he built me these two boxes and like two boxes that were about 16 inches high. He put carpet on them because he knew they had to be padded. Oh yeah. That
0: sounds like my college weight room experience.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And he built me these two boxes with, you know, carpet here, carpet here. And he told me, you know, you're going to go out there three days a week. And you're going to do hundred foot contacts back and forth, back and forth all winter long. And I was like, okay, great. He told me one time this 12 year old kid went out there every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in the cold garage in Buffalo, New York and did it. And then that's, my goal was to get a medal. Maybe I was 12th place at junior Olympics, the, my first year, because I want to get a medal and a quote unquote medal was a top six in junior Olympics back then. And I did all those Plyometrics. I was doing 300 foot contacts of plyometrics at 12 years old. Not a good thing.
0: I hope you've never told Stu that story because he'd probably fall over. Stuart. Yeah,
2: right. I mean, shockingly, I had shin splint problems when I was in college. Um, and but I went out and I went out and I got you know got two medals at the Junior Olympic Track Meet that year. My dad, who was a summer school teacher who worked summer school to pay for us to go out to California and Mount Sac, and I remember calling him and my dad crying on the phone when I told him that I got a fifth place because he knew the work that I put in all winter long and that he was a part of that. But also, like, I can't imagine thinking about my daughter right now, her, her doing that and me facilitating that. And I think that's where it came from for me. I think that lesson I got to learn. I got to learn, put the work in, outcome happens. And basically, I've been like that for the rest of my life ever since.
0: Oh, for sure. Where, sure. Um, how were you able to channel that when you decided... Okay, we've just snapped a 62-year drought for Team USA at the World Championships, a 50-year drought at the Olympics. We've come back from this, this crushing experience four years before to stand on the podium now. We've beaten, the, as you said, the best bobsled driver ever, arguably the greatest four-man crew ever. Yeah. Um, so when you decided, all right, I'm going to hang this up, What the heck is next? What was that transition like for you? And how did you get from that point to Classroom Champions?
2: You know, Classroom Champions had been a thing that we started when I was still competing, but it it never meant to be an organization. It was going to be the thing that my sister and I did because, holy crap, all of a sudden, I was the athlete. I was the person. I was living the the life the 10-year-old kid in us would have dreamt about. And we couldn't believe that. And we wanted to pay it forward with that. We wanted to do something that would actually make a difference for kids. And we wanted to do something that would actually show kids that it takes a long time and there's innate skills to do big things. You have to have big dreams, but you have to understand that it takes a long time and there's skills you can do to get there. And that's what we want to teach kids. Um, When I was, and that was going to be it. It wasn't meant to be an organization. It was actually, it was Dave Epstein, Phil, um, who prompted me to think a little bit twice about it becoming an organization um, and becoming the nonprofit and the powerhouse in sport and education that it's become over the last 10 years. Uh, it took about three or four years until I realized classroom champions was the thing I wanted to do. At first, uh, it was going to be something that was a volunteer organization. I was going to sit on the board. I was going to raise money for it and have people run it. Um, and I was into consulting and all of a sudden I was, all of a sudden my day rate consulting was what my monthly stipend was as an athlete. Um, like Again, if
0: people don't know rowers, bobsledders, you, those kind of sports fencing, as you mentioned earlier, you were not doing this to be on a Wheaties box, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we were 2000, we, I eventually got a raise and got $2,000 a month. So I was making 24, dollars a year.
1: Yeah. You couldn't even afford a Wheaties, uh Wheaties. <laughs> I, yeah.
2: That was, I was getting the no name brand. I was a no, the no frills brand. Um, And all of a sudden I was consulting and and he was here in corporate Calgary in the middle of an oil boom. And I was, you know, learning how to transfer my skills of leadership as an athlete. And I was working with an amazing woman named Lee McLean um, here in Calgary. And I was learning from her how to take the skills I had as an athlete and boil those into skills that would be valuable in the workforce. Uh, And that was a really neat learning experience. And I got to do that. And I tell athletes all the time, if you don't know what you want to do, do go into consulting because it is, I got to see 20 companies, dozens of companies, the inside and outsides of these companies and how they approach their leadership and how they approach their people management. Um, And I wouldn't have gotten that experience because, you know, I was 31, 32 years old and all of my friends had been in the workforce for 10 years. And all of a sudden they were, you know, they were in stable jobs at that point. They had. You know, they were making their way towards these six figure incomes and, and they had families and all of a sudden I'm 31 I'm single and I have no job prospects and I have no job experience. Um, So consulting allowed me to do that. And it wasn't really until I was with some clients and you guys have, everybody's, who's consulted has had this experience where you finish a day with a client. It was a great day for the client. And I put my hands on the steering wheel and I couldn't have cared less. I could not have cared less. And that company right now to this day is still a Classroom Champions sponsor, but I didn't care. And that's when I realized I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. The money is good. I still don't make as much money today running Classroom Champions as I did in 2013 consulting in the energy industry. But I put my hands on the steering wheel. I said, no, this is not what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And the next day I went to all my clients and I said, I'm going to take six weeks. I'm going to help you find somebody to replace me. And then I'm going to go run Classroom Champions and see how that goes. Um, it was best decision that I best decision I ever made. Luckily, I was single at the time. Um, you know, luckily I was had been an athlete, so I was used to living on peanuts because Classroom Champions had no money um, at that point to actually pay me a salary. So that was how I you know found myself in the, found myself in Classroom Champions was a it was making a difference. It was the thing I was doing from six o'clock at night until midnight after working with clients, um, and then B I realized that just Helping adults go from mediocre to slightly better was not the way I wanted to spend my time. Um, you know, I loved working with the executive teams. I loved working with people who wanted to get better. And you could see that in people, right? Like, you, you know, if when you do these things, there's 25% of the people in the room want to get better. 50% of the people, you know, don't mind getting better. 25% of the people hate being there. And that just was not the thing yeah, that I want to
0: live Jim, Jim just quoted that in our last most recent on-site. Jim, what, what do you say? What, What's your similar analogy there or your similar statement about the percentages?
1: Oh, well, are you talking about sports psych? That, yeah, is it uh, like a third, a third, yeah, a third, a third? A, a third don't want to hear about sports psychology. A third only if they're doing, you know, like they're struggling, they're going through a rough patch, you know, they're yeah. in a slump. And then a third want to know everything they can about what, you know, what we're talking about.
0: Any competitive uh, advantage, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll try to find it and, and maximize it. that's well, what's third. amazing though about what you're
1: talking about, Steve, is is the curriculum, uh, the units. Uh, there's eight, I think. There's eight, eight units. This is amazing. Goal setting, emotions, community, perseverance, teamwork. I love that you have feedback on there. Uh, that that's what, when I talk with coaches and teachers and others and athletes themselves. Uh, the the athletes talk about having a hard time receiving any feedback. It just feels too personal, too much like criticism. And I love Ray Dalio. The American investor says that pain plus reflection equals progress. So without that reflection or the feedback, how are you going to get better at everything? And then healthy living, Phil and I like to talk about, you know, lifestyle a lot, you know, what do you do in those 20 other hours of the day or, you know, when you're not competing in your sport or, you know, maybe the eight hours a day when you're not in school and then, uh, and then you guys end with leadership. What is this? How did you put this together? It seems like this is like incredible in terms of leadership, teamwork, sports psychology, emotional intelligence. It's it's an amazing
2: grouping. the, the work the work our education team does and research team does is amazing. I, I, you know, I mean, I, I give all the credit to. Uh, I mean, like both my wife and my sister. Actually, I mean, I, I'm fortunate. That early on, when we were a grassroots-based organization, that my sister has her PhD in education and my wife is a psychologist. And when you can put those two kinds of people together, and then my understanding of sport, that's where, I mean, the feedback thing. I mean, Jim, like I, like I love the whole curriculum. I love the order, the recommended order for yeah. schools to go through it. With, I love that they get to spend a month. It's recommended that schools spend a month in each of these and they dive in and weaves into their, to whether it's Common Core or their state standards. um, And it helps get them the outcomes that they want for their students and for their teachers. But the feedback one, like literally happened, and you guys know this happens all the time. Your best ideas happen from their most random places. We were on a, like, we were on our baby moon before our first child in British Columbia and right before, like, it was going to be wine tasting in the summer and, um, you know, early, early summer before our first daughter was born. Um, and we were talking about just the differences between the way like men and women absorb and, and take feedback and they are, they are demonstrably different. And again, she being, she being the psychologist who studies, um, the difference between <laughs> like, between the sexes in a lot of ways, she understands that, that, Early on in life, little girls are given feedback in a very different way than little boys are given feedback. Um, You know, our daughter's name is Brett. Our daughter, when she's on the ski hill, is wearing blue snow pants, a blue jacket, and a blue helmet. And that is not on purpose because I've seen the way that people provide feedback to the girls on the hill and the boys on the hill. And we want her to get that boy feedback. And that's where feedback as a subject came from. It's a a relatively new one was because she wanted to give little girls out there the opportunity to get critical feedback in a way that we just naturally don't do it. Um, And that's what the costume champions feedback subject is about. And topic is about is it's helping enable teachers and, I mean, and also not for nothing, who better than to teach kids about feedback than athletes. We take feedback as an athlete on the sports field completely impersonally. Because it is about my foot angle and my shin angle, not about me as a human being. As soon as feedback happens in the corporate environment or in the grown up environment, or as the athletes would say, the real world, it gets personal really quickly because my work is my person. My mm. ability to communicate with others is something that I'm controlling. But in sport, we have a way to depersonalize it so well. And I think that if, you know, empowering and enabling schools to actually, to me, I think that's actually the single most important. The topic of all of classroom champions is, is feedback. That if if a kid, if kids can come out of here and, you know, five years later have the deepest understanding that feedback and understanding how to give it and receive it is the way that they're going to be successful. You wind up with not having to like a bunch of us don't have consulting jobs anymore because companies won't need to do leadership development courses anymore. Like the fact of the matter is, and we talk about this with some of our corporate sponsors all the time. Especially if it's a corporate sponsor who's going to be in a community for 40 years. Like, look, think about how much money you spend on leadership development at your company. Are you spending it on math? No. Are you spending it on teaching science? No. Are you spending it on teaching history to your adults? No. The school systems in the last 50 years have not been able to do this well, and they just need help. And especially now, when we look at the mental health issues that are happening, um, school the school systems need help. And I think sport is like one of the perfect places to, to provide that kind of support. Can you dive into that
0: topic you just mentioned a little bit more, which is kind of the, this mental health crisis that young people particularly are facing right now?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, You know, where to, where to begin. Right. Um, I, you know, I think that when we look at, let's take the positive side of it all. Look, you can take the, you can Robert Wood Johnson foundation, which is a, a leading health, Foundation in America based in New Jersey. They've done longitudinal studies where they've looked and said the social emotional health of a child at ages five and six, so kindergarten ages. Teachers can predict with alarming accuracy the income level, the education level, the dependence on drugs and alcohol, the dependence on the safety, so, social safety net, the incarceration rates of, of kids 20 years later based on positive or negative social emotional traits at six years old. That's how important these things are. Um, University of Chicago did a study um, of 20,000 kids in the Chicago public school systems. Attendance and engagement in middle school is more predictive of high school graduation than test scores in middle school. So, when you talk about the things that engagement in sport can bring to the school system, I mean, this is you know what we're starting to think about more and more classroom champions is not just what classroom champions can do, but ultimately. Sport is this place, and I'm preaching to the choir, and you guys, and probably your audience. Sport is this place in society. We'll use American society as a, as you know, as our conversation here. That has the least political spread. Like everybody from from red Alabama to blue New York, were watching the Chargers and the Raiders last night. So I can date this podcast for us. Um, uh, everybody was watching it. Um, it is, has the most positive numbers and the least political you know, issues between it. And then over here, you have the school system. And our school systems are probably in the worst shape that they've been in uh, in generations, probably likely in our lifetime. And that has to do with the in- increasing complexities of society and what kids are having to deal with and what us adults are having to deal with between social media, between mental health crises. Um, you know, We don't know how to fix ourselves as adults, let alone... How do we help these kids try to figure out what's happening in the world? Yet the most positive influence and depoliticized place of our society is not connected directly to the most important part of our society, which is education. And I think we need to change that. I think people like you, I think people like me, I think organizations like Classroom Champions, I think organizations like the NFL and Team USA and MLB have to get together with educators and say, how can we help? How can we help? And we can, and Classroom Champions is kind of the proof point, I think, right now of how you can actually take curriculum and create student success, but Classroom Champions isn't the answer. It's not the one that's going to do it all, but we've got to get everybody in a room. We've got to get Department of Education in Washington, D.C. We've got to get the state leadership across the country, and we've got to get the leagues and the teams and the athletes in a room, and we've got to start to have a conversation. Sorry, that was my soapbox. I love
0: it. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Well, it's amazing
1: that, uh, you cover high performance and then also mental health, uh, as a protective factor in terms of the emotional intelligence piece and, you know, teamwork, feedback, goal setting, all those work so well together.
2: It gives, and it it gives agency to kids ultimately like total empowerment. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we can like part of, I've got my whoop here, um, and I, uh, you know, not, I'm not pushing the thing, but I do love my whoop. Um, <clears throat> and I hey, think the thing, I, brought you yeah, today's by. brought you by, uh, and in there now they have like all these like things they'll ask you after your day. So everybody with a whoop out there will know, like, it'll ask you about how you felt in control of your life and all this other stuff, factors you can answer. And it'll base that pace upon your performance and your rest and recovery. And you can actually start to, you know, associate and correlate between how I felt and what my recovery was the next day. And I think that one of those questions are how much control you felt like you had over your day. And that is for most people, a lack of control and a feeling of lack of control is the cause of anxiety. It is the cause of, you know, one of the causes of depression. I can speak both from the science as well as from personal experience. And I think if you can give kids that, and let them understand like, look, these are not intangible factors. These people that we've been hiding on magazine covers and hiding on, you know, podiums, uh, these LeBron James's, everybody else. These are, these are things that they control on a daily basis. And here are the skills that they use here. We're going to teach it to you like history and science and math. Like the things you learn in school stick with you. I don't know about you guys, but I still have a, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that Pluto is not a planet. It's, it's an outrage it <laughs> right. is an, well,
0: right. although, well yeah on the other side i mean the other day i was having a conversation with a friend and i said mr john lucas who i had for history for two years in the middle of what we called secondary school high school yeah, taught me more about what jim and i do now about how to identify bias how to interview how to do source work whether you're in a dusty archives which you know i've done with my history books um or you're in a library, that's the thing, kids, you know, or you're yeah. looking stuff up on the internet and clipping it to Evernote, you know, which is a tool I've used for many years is really helpful. Mm-hmm. But these things that, you know, you, you don't know when you're a 14, 15-year-old kid in Southwest England that 15, 20, 30 years later, halfway across the world, that these skills you're being taught are going to benefit you, but they sure as heck did. And I wish I could track, track this mr lucas down and be like thank you and you may not have known this at the time but every single book i have done all 15 of them everything jim and i are working on now all stemmed from what you taught me and the passion with which you taught it all those years ago and that's that's, i mean and you see this and great teachers don't know they're great teachers because they're humble and they're in the trenches and but it sticks it
2: does stick mr mr toy mr duggan those are my i was actually just emailing with mr duggan jim duggan this the other day an old english teacher and um and he we were we were we were talking about you know almost exactly that Phil. But ultimately, like to me, I think the things we learn in school matter. And yes, we we have charter schools and we have all these other experimental places that we're trying to figure out, but public schools in America and globally are the place that are gonna solve our solve or become the cause of the challenges that we're gonna face. And the things we learn in school matters, which is where the Pluto example comes in. Because we learned it in school, it's really hard for us to unlearn that. So imagine if in school, oh my God, it seems so easy, all of the stuff that we have to teach corporate leadership training for, what if we could actually help schools teach that better? And the schools want to teach these things now. Social emotional learning is something that 10 years ago, when we started Classroom Champions, there was one state, Illinois, that had any kind of standards or legislation around SEL. Today, 23 or 24 have standards and legislation, all 50 have guidance um, and guidelines of some sort. I mean, even the state of Texas mandates social emotional learning in every school uh, as, an, as an example of what the legislation says. So they're trying to figure it out. Um, and that's where I think sport can step in and be a part of the solution in a way that it's really hard because it's, it's not rote learning, right? Like yeah. you got, whether we're teaching adults or kids how to set a goal, it's not like this is the way. There's not a wrong. There's not a right and wrong answer. Like there is clearly a wrong answer to one plus one.
0: Or if you have to, like we had to identify the lineage of all the kings and queens over 500 years. Well, you're either Precisely. going to get them all right and get them in order, or you're not.
2: Yes, not something we learn in America. Not something we learn. I think we learned that you guys had kings and queens. I think, yeah. and then we, yeah. and then we, beat, maybe then the we, presidents,
0: maybe, or, or even with my kids, like you have to identify. You know, in middle school the state and the state capital by being shown a blank map and this is the shape of this yeah. state, right? Like, I think that will haunt my wife and my my sons for the rest of their days. But
2: when I, fir- when I first moved to Canada, the Canadians were always like keen to remind me that the Canadians won the War of 1812. And you no, know, what's funny is we don't learn that in American schools.
1: Isn't that amazing? The history of the victors, right?
2: Yeah, I was like, what are you talking about? And they were very proud. The Canadians are very, you ask any Canadian, they're very proud that they beat the Americans in the War of 1812. Now, A, I think it was the Brits because it wasn't quite Canada yet. And hey, um,
0: Commonwealth, baby. Right, exactly.
2: <laughs> you guys get, you guys take the credit for it. We um, always do. But, but what we, yeah. we learn in school matters. And I think, you know, helping schools figure out how we're going to solve this one, man, is going to be such a, it's going to be hard, but it's going to be incredibly important. I don't want my kid to go through school where they're not, where she's not learning these kinds of skills.
1: Well, what a gift with the Olympians, the Paralympians. And then I love how you have a combo of in class and then a, a lot of video and, mm-hmm. and online. And, you know, parents these days don't get Phil started, but parents these days, you know, are so concerned about screen time. And for to give parents the peace of mind that the kids could be on the screen talking to an Olympian or a Paralympian or watching a video on goal setting, that is incredible.
2: It, it And the athletes love it too. I mean, A, the athletes love it. And I think that's the thing. People say, well, they're not LeBron James or not Sidney Crosby. And ultimately, what we've learned at Classroom Champions over time is that the celebrity actually doesn't matter when it comes to the outcome, when it comes mm. to the, impa- the measured impact. Because we're measuring all these things, because we have a re- robust evidence-based measurement program, um, those things over time don't matter. If I were to go, if you know, or if LeBron went into a school every day... By month three, it would be, hey, Brown, what's up? And then it would be normal. So we had to figure out the balance between uh, frequent enough so the kids felt like this person is interacting with me enough that I that they care about me, but not so frequent where it becomes Charlie Brown's mom's voice of wah, 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 wah in the background. Mm-hmm. So we've, we we've experiment with that over time, what those right pieces are. We've got an online community where the teachers can post the work the kids do and the athletes can go in and comment on it like a Facebook, because, you know, whether we are, I'm 43 and it still feels good. Somebody who I respect likes a post I made on Facebook. It still does give me a nice feeling. Um, I'm not so like high and mighty that I can't say that that's the reality of it. And so imagine for a kid when an Olympian goes in and likes it, or an NCAA student athlete goes in and, and likes it or comments within their, how that, you know, turns, changes the value of what's happening in school. Um, There. And and that's, you know, our goal at classroom champions is we just, you know, launched a campaign. We want a million kids learning the athlete mindset by 2025. And I think that's how we start to really move the bar is, um, you know, a million kids on a weekly basis. Now that's the, that's the new goal is, and that's going to take, you know, working with school districts, it's going to take working with states to actually help this become, you know, something that schools are, you know, part of their day-to-day infrastructure um, which is a fa- again it 's a fascinating challenge to go back to what we talked about a while ago is man, like it 's hard working with school systems and and implementing technology and implementing like something that is in, you know inherently hard to measure because there's no right and wrong answers. School systems love measurement and they love things that are quantifiable. well it 's really hard to quantify school culture. We try and we do, we help them think about it, but ultimately, everybody's scales are going to be, you know, scales are going to be different.
0: Do you feel like in underprivileged, and maybe that's politically incorrect now to say that um, schools and school district, that there's an even greater need for some of those social, emotional learning and some of the coping tools that, that you teach within the program?
2: Well, it's so it's a really interesting thing. And I appreciate the, the, the attempt at the, you know, trying to find the line of like the correct label, right? We, we look at it as like, Underserved communities, you know, we, don't, we don't label kids. We try not to label schools, um, but we look at communities that are underserved, um, underfunded, under-resourced, especially the way the American system works. What's really interesting about kids in those communities, I use Camden, New Jersey. One of my favorite places in the country is Camden, New Jersey. It's right across the river from Philadelphia. Um, Camden is one of the, you know it's quite often one of the most dangerous communities in America. Um, we've had a couple of kids who've been through Classroom Champions there um, who have since been, who have since been shot, um, and, and passed away. And what that community is up against is not a grit problem. Those kids are gritty. You do not need to teach grit to kids in Camden, New Jersey. They have to go from, I mean, there are safe walking zones in Camden, New Jersey, quite literally where if point A and point B is their house and a school, they have to walk around. And for those, you know, who can't see them, they have to actually walk around, not in a straight line because there's some areas of the community that are not safe for kids to be walking. So they have safe passage corridors. So the, so the, you know, police can actually help those areas. Um, and those kids, you know, you don't have to teach those kids about resilience or perseverance or grit, man. Those kids are built with that. What you have to do is help empower them that those skills they have can help them go do awesome things. So I think that's the thing is where, like, yes, the gap is growing, like the the divide in haves and have nots in America, the pandemic has accelerated that. So yes, this is needed more. Um, What I think is more interesting to me is actually where older U.S. census data, um, some stuff that was done in the 90s, I think is still really, really interesting. And what that showed was the percentage of role models in a community is directly correlated to the dropout rate in the community. So... <clears throat> there was some, da- some um, Jonathan Crane is the researcher that did this back in the early 90s. And what he saw was a community that has, say, 40% of you know, what we'd call role models by the U.S. Census Bureau. So you know, uh, you know, good jobs, good you know, you know, decent sa- average salaries, no criminal background, things like that, you know, that the Census Bureau t- census can pick up. Um, what they saw was when you went from 40% of people in the community that are role models down to 5.5%, the dropout rate doubles. So from 40% to 5.5%, it seems like that's a lot of <laughs> difference in a community, right? If 40% of the people in a community are considered role models down to five and a half percent, it doubles. But when you go from five and a half to three and a half percent, it doubles again. Which means that those communities, to your point, Phil, the communities that are the most needing of positive role models in, in, in their areas, that has the biggest dramatic effect on kids. So what we think about at Classroom Champions is we're putting in virtually these extra remote role models into communities. And hopefully we can be that one or two extra adults in these kids' lives that show they care and they show they care because they're traveling around Europe and they send their video lessons in on a regular basis and they zoom with them on a, you know, on a multi times per year and they comment on the community. So we hope we can crank that back from three and a half and crank it back up to five and a half percent of role models in the community. Um, Cause early in the nineties, they had to be in person. Now it's just, you're asking kids if they have a, an adult in their life who cares about them, which is a huge indicator of, of, you know, potential for, you know, potential for success for kids.
1: Yeah. Uh, role modeling is huge for self-efficacy, you know, just feeling like I could do it too. And so w- yeah. what that's amazing is having these Paralympians and Olympians that uh, are showing this interest in teaching what they've learned and obstacles they've overcome. And it, man, that really helps kids feel confident that, you know, I, you know, this person's, you know, kind of has gone to the moon, so to speak, in terms of what they've accomplished, but they're talking to me today. And that mm-hmm. and, is, and they're real, they're living, they're breathing. And um, and what a special gift you're giving. Uh, confidence is, is, is key. Um, uh, I do have to say that um, it must have been such an amazing experience getting elected to the Buffalo Hall of Fame. Uh, I don't think people realize who's in there. I mean, you got Pop Warner, you uh, got, right? Jim, you know, Jim Kelly, Scotty Bowman, maybe the greatest coach ever. Like, what yep. was that day like for you? And then, you know, we're going to start uh, you know, wrapping up in a second here. But I, I love stories like that where you grow up in a city and then you and then you make it in the Hall of Fame. And that, I mean, that to me just blows my mind. Oh, to me, man. that's that's that must be like give you goosebumps just even thinking about it, it.
2: It gives me the chills just thinking about it as you're talking about it, Jim. Um, so many yeah, legends it, on that list, and and when you're from a place like Buffalo. Like Buffalo is the third poorest city in the country. <clears throat> Buffalo has the Buffalo bills, the Buffalo sabers. And that was it. Like, I mean, Buffalo's population 1950 was 500,000 people in the city. It's been like 220, 20, now. Like it has nowhere else in the country has Detroit and Buffalo and Cleveland, like these places that just hollowed out. Um, so sports was sports was the thing. So yeah, man, like to be the, the first Olympic gold medalist from the city proper, um, was something special. I was given the key to the city. It's on my back wall there too. Um, the key to the city. Um, and when I was inducted to the hall of fame, Jim Kelly was in the room. Andre Reed was in the room. Oh, wow. um, And I think thermal Thurman was in the room. One of the other bills, maybe Bruce or Thurman was in the room. And what I said to them was, and I like was giving my speech and they, they had me go last. Um, my acceptance speech. And I had said to the guys and I was lucky enough to meet them. You know, at other points of my career, because I had season tickets. My dad and I had I, I went to from 10 years old to going to college in 1996. We had the best season tickets in the country in the 90s. Like, sure, we lost four Super Bowls in a row, but we had to win every game to get there. Um, and we got to be there for that. And I had said to the guys, I was like literally like talking to the guys from this, from this, from the microphone said the thing that Buffalo Bills taught me and why like being inducted to the Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame was so special to me was that in the first Super Bowl, the Bills lost. I mean, Phil, I don't know if you know your American football history as well. I mean, Jim, Jim would certainly know the name of the kicker. <laughs> Come on, Jim.
0: You're on the spot now. Go
2: on, Jim. Remember the, the kicker who missed the field goal? Oh, yeah. Was it Norwood? Scott, Scott Norwood. Norwood. There you go. Scott Norwood. <clears throat> Any self-respecting American football fan will know who Scott Norwood is. They made movies about him.
0: The only kicking I know well, about is is rugby and our friend Nick Gill at the All Blacks. Or in in my case, the best kick of all time was Johnny Wilkinson's drop goal to beat the Aussies in the right our lone rugby World Cup win. So did
2: you did you follow any of that, Jim? Did you follow well, any of what he oh,
0: oh no? Well He, he likes his rugby well enough. He's no, oh silly. no, I do, I do too. But
1: uh no at, at, uh Buffalo, a lot of that was dumb luck too. And um they were so fun to watch. I mean, they had the, the run, uh, running back, uh, quarterback, defensive line. I mean, it was just, oh, man. they were an all-star team and it was dumb <laughs> luck, but to make it to four, it's like making it, you know, it that's unbelievable. How many yep. people even make it to a Super Bowl? Like, right? you know, and, and to four. Um, yeah, I don't have the privilege of losing four. Well, yeah. Joe, Joe McCarthy uh, may be considered one of the best managers in baseball history. It's amazing For yeah, uh, for Buffalo, who comes out of there, and so I love your. I I just wanted to get a little insider story from that day when you were were like. So
2: so I was so I'll I'll finish the I'll finish the story and I I had cut myself off, which was watching. So the reason when I think about and Phil, you asked this earlier, like where did my competitive drive come from? The other place it came from, other than like that experience of like doing the pie metrics in the garage all winter long and then going and succeeding, was. I watched Scott Norwood miss the field goal and dash the hopes and dreams of this city that has, that had nothing. They came home after the game and they had a celebration in the square downtown in front of city hall. And the whole crowd started cheering Scott. Scott, 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 And here's this kid, this this field goal kicking kid who just lost the Super Bowl. Literally, he was the one who lost the Super Bowl. The crowd cheered for him and chanted his name and he came out and he spoke. he was bawling. And I was right at that age. I was, this was 1991. So again, I was 12, 13 years old, this formative, these formative years where you're watching and you're starting to understand how this whole thing called the world works. And I see the guy who lost the Super Bowl, be cheered on by his city. And I learned failing is cool. Failing's fine. Like you could fail and the whole city will still love you because you tried. And I think, like, and it sounds cheesy and it sounds cliche, but when you're 12 or 13 years old, man, those are the kinds of things. If I was five, it wouldn't affect me the same. If I was 18, it wouldn't affect me the same. But that's the credit. And I said to Jim and Andre and Thurman, I said, thank you guys. I said, look, if there's anything, another thing positive that came out of your losses is it was it taught my generation that this city believes in you and the people who are around you you can fail and it's okay you can come back and it's okay so i think that was like for me jim that was a that was what it meant to me to be in, inducted in the buffalo sports hall of fame
1: you guys are tough you've had some of those snowstorms one time i was in buffalo and i saw this giant you know building downtown and they had yep. this line where the snowstorm went up to there's there's been a bunch i don't remember which one it was it was there's been several within the
2: last like 10 years there was that one epic one yeah
1: it doesn't it defies reality because it's just it's like halfway up a giant building it's like crazy but
2: yeah uh, and then and then one mile north like a dusting of snow yeah
1: yeah it's amazing so uh Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, tons of uh, gems and 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 gold nuggets for for us and our listeners. And then how, how can how can listeners help with uh, classroom champions?
2: You know, uh, I mean I think yeah. head head to classroomchampions.org. Um, you know, if you're a teacher or a school leader, um, you know, reach out to us you can find info at classroomchampions.org. You can you can email me at s messler at classroom Um and, you know, or if you're a corporation or an individual donor and you you think that this is what kids need, if you think that kids in schools need to put the athlete mindset to work um, inside their curriculum, inside their four walls, you know, you we, we want to talk to you. Like we're going to, it's going to have to take, it's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take, you know, we're setting a, a goal of around $16 million over the next three years to be able to reach, you know, a million kids by 2025, which means about a million and a half kids. So it's really a, um, the system itself is really inexpensive per pupil to be able to make that kind of change and, and help give kids that kind of mindset. So yeah, please reach out.
1: Love it. Love it. Uh, Phil, Phil sure. last thing too, is, uh, Phil is a, uh, big track and field fan. Uh, any, any, did you end up ever meeting Linford Christie or any of those track and field guys?
2: I mean, like, I mean, clearly like Dan O'Brien was my, like, yeah, he was your guy and I'll be all to get to meet him. Um, you know, Michael Johnson is somebody who he's, he's the guy who I still want to meet. Yeah. I haven't met Michael yet. He's the guy who I still want to meet. We, uh, we
0: got in touch with his, went back and forth a little bit with his director of performance at the Michael Johnson performance center. So he was like, yeah, man, come on down. You know? So it was like, Oh, don't don't tempt me.
2: (laughs) Right. Oh man. You guys should, uh, you know, got to, got to, um, and coming the, back
0: from the stroke, you know, there was that BBC article right. I remember sharing with some friends, um, where he said it took him longer to walk down a short hospital corridor than it had to to run his 400, former four you know four hundred meter world record. Like, man, that's that's pretty it's, real right there. Yeah,
2: I, I was in. We were at the Olympic Stadium in Atlanta when he broke his two hundred meter record. Wow. Oh wow! I, I, I usually wear, I wear glasses quite often. I remember looking up the screen and going, "Oh, like nineteen eighty two? That's pretty fast." And I squinted. I was like, oh, 32. different yeah. story. Um, yeah. Donovan- I thought I
0: thought no one would ever break it because people thought nobody had got near Manea's record for, since the seventies. So, and then Usain
2: Bolt and then comes young out, man, young man, <laughs> Usain Bolt. I met Usain. I met Usain <laughs> at a at a uh, I met Usain at a track meet in in New York. Um, he was pretty cool. Um, and then Donovan Bailey. I've become good friends with Donovan Bailey over the That's years. Right, I'll yeah. coach, one of Sumen- the great. Yeah. Stu McMillan great. is exactly, I mean, Stu and Donovan go way back, way, way back with Dan Paff, um, Another, yeah. you know, another good friend and, and oh, yeah. big, big fan of classroom champions. Yeah. Dan is a big fan of classroom champions. He's, he is like all that in track and field. I could listen oh, yeah. to Dan talk about track and field all day long.
0: Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of good Dan's Dan. John is another good friend, obviously a legendary yeah. strength coach, um, yeah. Dan Pfaff, Yeah. And just such, such humility and just so softly spoken and yet, you know, just that that authority, even if you're just talking to him. Um, never been in the room with him, but yeah, just great guys, and yeah, would love to have Stu on the show as well. So oh, uh, you should you yeah. should definitely
2: get you should definitely get Stu on. He has got that kind of Dan wisdom at this point um, at this point in his career. They I all mean,
0: wa- they all warrior
2: poets for sure. They basically. really are, man. <laughs> they really they really are. I mean, Dan. I can remember my coach, Jerry Clayton was the guy who like caused me to go into bobsled. He's the guy who planted the seed. Um, it was Jerry Clayton, Dan path and boo, uh, from LSU were the, that was the triumvirate back in my day that were all associated also with, in, within the Dan path kind of thought process. I remember getting to getting here, up to here to Calgary in early two thousands, having Stu give me my like, you know, GS, my general strength sheet. And it was all of the same stuff we did in florida in 1996 97 because dan path and all these guys shared all of their info oh, yeah. across yeah. with each other yeah that community is amazing
0: even um Got to spend some time in person with Gray Cook, you know, who invented the functional movement screen. And mm. um, and it, he oh, dry man. needled me under the influence of his neighbor's moonshine at his late. <laughs> <cabin>. <laughs> the only person I would trust to dry needle my, my dodgy ankle. But yeah, I mean, Gray is another one that just in that, you know, and then obviously like Pavel from Strong First and, mm-hmm. and that whole crew, and and um yeah, just just amazing that the this that how small that circle becomes for those who really know coaching. I was so fortunate, man. It's, like you, I have, you like, got that you got these touch points with such a, a great community of coaches.
2: I didn't, you know, Mike Holloway was my sprint coach in college. Mm, I mean, you wow. know, Mouse, mouse is yeah. you know, which coached some of the best Americans, and then I went from Mouse to Stu, um, and I got <laughs> to, you know, I got to spend ten years with Stu here in Calgary every single day, and Amazing. just the, the philosophical awesome. conversations we got to have, let alone the actual like physical training kind of stuff. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, one last question before yeah. we let
0: you go. What what do you want the legacy of Classroom Champions to be 20, 30, 40 years from now?
2: That's have never been asked that question. Um, that's a really great question. And, you know, I've been actually starting to think. We were about 10 years into over 10 years into Classroom Champions now. So I've actually been thinking about that more and more. I think ultimately, if we can provide sport a path to make a difference within the four walls of education, I'm... Um, I'm ecstatic, and I think we've done that, um, or I think we're doing that and building that. Whereas before, sport was this thing that was an after-school add-on, or even you know, even, if, even you know, NFL Play 60 is something that kids select into. But the fact that we've been able to take the athlete mindset and and leverage sport into something that schools actually build into their curriculum, I think is is a game changer for how sport can actually impact impact the trajectory of kids because ultimately, again, like we said earlier, public schools are the way that are going to change the game um, for better or for worse. And you have this positive influence, this apolitical influence of sport, let alone the role models that kids look up to and, you know, and, and all of that. So I think if we can, if we can be the you know impetus that 30 years from now, it's standard that every single professional sports city and every single NCAA town and city that they are leveraging the excitement and the engagement that is sport and they're able to, to put it into schools in a way that kids can learn the intangibles, all the things you guys do so well and share so well with, with, you know, people of all ages. I think that's, that's where I think classroom champions, you know, hopefully the legacy of that, um, you know, is the, is the thing that hopefully overshadows the fact that there was a time of which I was really, really good at running for five seconds and sitting for a minute. Mm -hmm. You're too (laughs) humble, my friend. Well,
0: this has been an absolute joy. Thank you so
2: much, Steve, as always for your time and
0: more so your insight and your thoughtfulness. And also for, you know, this mission that you've committed the rest of your life to, because it's, um, even though you're humble enough to downplay your role in it, it's, you know, it it, it did come from you and your sister and your wife and the rest of the the great team you have there. And um, you're really committed to making a difference. So thank you for, for your servant leadership.
2: Well, thank you for having me guys. This was a blast. I love just thank being you. able to take take our time and 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 walk through a whole bunch of different topics. And, and I love the work that you guys do. And again, I think it's like so needed, so needed that we we've got to find ways to just for so long, sport implicit it was implicit that sport had these values and pass these values on. And I think guys like you are are making sure that people understand the explicit nature um of of the the intangibles that sport brings. So thank you guys for the work you guys are doing. Oh, well, Thanks thank so you, much. Sir. Have a great Pleasure's day,
0: everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.